This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. It is not intended to cause or induce breach of an existing agency agreement. The goal of this podcast since day one is to provide the best information on the Vancouver real estate market at no cost to you, the listeners. To that end, we'd like to thank the following sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by Marcon, a local family-owned and managed real estate development and construction company that's been around for nearly four decades. Marcon is not only committed to high-quality construction, but it also is making a positive impact in the communities in which it builds all across the Lower Mainland. We want to highlight two incredible Marcon projects. Elmwood, a 38-story tower located at Burquitlam's most important intersection, Como Lake Avenue and Clark Road. This landmark tower will feature 335 condominiums, over 37,000 square feet of office and retail space, and almost 20,000 square feet of amenity space. Elmwood has been incredibly popular with 80% sold currently, but they still have a great selection of junior one-bedroom all the way to three-bedroom homes remaining. Check out markon.ca slash Elmwood for more. And Matt, we are also excited about Sone House, Markon's newest community in West Coquitlam. With 165 homes ranging from junior one beds to three beds, Sone House offers the perfect West Coast aesthetic with a more nuanced Nordic-inspired design. Register today at markon.ca slash Sonehouse. That's S-O-E-N-H-A-U-S. Or you can learn more at markon.ca or follow them at Instagram at markonhomes. Markon, building for life. Hello? 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 This is the Vancouver Weather State Podcast. And welcome back to Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Scalina. And I'm your other host, Matt Scalina. And Matt, I'm so fired up for today because we have Vishon Chakrabarty on the program. That's right. Now, this uh, this fellow, if you don't know, uh, is an actual fe- fellow. Is, is a fe- <laughs> is, yeah, he's, he's, he's legit as a fellow. He's legitimately, legitimately a Which fellow. way did you mean it, though? I, I meant, if you, if you don't know Vishon Chakrabarty, uh, you should, because he's a fairly accomplished guy. Yeah, so director former director of the Manhattan office of the New York Department of City Planning. This was under Michael Bloomberg. That's right. Uh, he is also the founder of Practice for Architecture and Urbanism, which is a really notable- kind of thought leaders, right? Yeah, thought leaders in the architectural world. And urban planning. And last but not least, this is his current title. Uh, he is the Dean of the College of Environmental Design at UC Berkeley. Maybe you heard of it. It's a fairly well-regarded established school. I, just I always say. want to say how you like those apples <laughs> when, when we're talking about universities, but that's not, no. that's not, that doesn't happen no. on the West Coast. Although he did, he was born he in was Boston. born in Boston, that's true. Born in Boston, yeah, so how probably, you like those apples. So you're probably, that's probably <laughs> what you're thinking of. Uh, last but not least, Vishan uh, wrote the book, A Country of Cities, A Manifesto for an Urban America. Uh, very well-regarded book. And most recently, called for banning the private car in the city of Manhattan in the New York Times. This is a wide-reaching conversation 
a very interesting conversation. Uh, I'm so excited to have Vishen Chakrabarty on the show. I can't wait. And I just want to plug next week's episode as well. It's either going to be next week or the week after. But we also had a great call this morning with Mark Henteman, who is writer for David Letterman, uh, formerly. formerly. Um, also, he is the executive producer and a writer for the show The Family Guy. I don't think it's The Family Guy. It's just, just family, family Guy. guy. There's no The? No. No, it's I, The Simpsons is right, what I'm right, thinking of. Sorry. Right. Yeah. Oh, wait. No, that's, I mean, come on. They're, yeah. They're taken together, aren't they? I think so. Yeah. I think so. Uh, and, and last but not least, though, and the reason we had him on the program is he's also got $90 million in real estate holdings in LA. This guy will knock your socks off as well. So yeah. some great guests we've got here on the Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. And that's probably why we're sponsored by Oakland Realty. That's right. Oakland Realty is our brokerage and sponsors the Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. Head over, this is for agents, by the way, if you're a new agent, uh, a seasoned agent looking to make a change, head over to oakland.com slash join, type in VRP2020. That's oakland.com slash join, type in VRP2020 to find out more about Oakland Realty. And as importantly, get a huge incentive or yes. surprise. Surprise, yeah. Yeah, definitely sit down with these guys if you are exploring options with brokerages because they are definitely, you know, I would say the, maybe the most important brokerage in Vancouver right now. I would, argue, I would argue that. One of them. Yeah, thought leaders for sure. Great resources, great support, phenomenal place to be. Uh, also, Matt, we have the Sellers Club, the most exclusive club in town. That is becoming less and less exclusive every single day. Head over to <laughs> VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com and sign up there for the Sellers Club or send an email to info at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. Yeah. In short, these are the best resources that we're putting together so you can ensure that you get top dollar in the shortest amount of time when you sell your property. That's right. The Sellers Club and it's ongoing. It we're, is. We're always, we're always We've got volume more. one out, but uh, volume two is coming, and it's just going to be a drip of valuable content That's moving right. forward. You want to be you want to be in this club. There's yes. no question about it. But maybe we should cut to our talk with Vishan Chakrabarty. This is a very, uh, very interesting conversation. You guys are going to love this one. Okay, so we're here with Vishan Chakrabarty, American architect, dean of the College of Environmental Design at UC Berkeley, and founder of Practice for Architecture and Urbanism, an architecture firm based out of New York City. How are you doing, Vishan? Great, thank you. How are you? Very well. Thanks so much for taking the time today, Vishan. Sure, my pleasure. Can, can you maybe start by telling our listeners, Vishan, a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, I was born in Calcutta, India. And my family and I emigrated when I was quite young to the United States. And um, really, you know, my, my, my dad was a scientist. My mother was a musician and a librarian. And so, you know, not like really well-paid jobs, but my dad had a lot of lectures and stuff to do uh, in various cities. And so he would always like take the honorarium and split it up and somehow get us to travel. And so... We, um, we saw the cities of the world and ate in all sorts of different restaurants and things, um, all kind of on a shoestring budget when I was a kid. So, you know, growing up, I became very interested in cities and museums and architecture. And uh, I think that really laid the foundation for uh, what I ended up doing with my life. So I ended up studying art and art history and engineering in uh, university. And then... Um, 
studied city planning and architecture in graduate school. Uh, and so I've had this kind of nonlinear career, but always kind of focused on the architecture of urbanism. Uh, and so very, very focused on not just architecture, which I love, but also the design of cities and how it impacts issues of um, sustainability and equity in particular. And as I understand, Vishan, you, you kind of you spent a lot of time working in in Manhattan uh, at the start of your career. Is that correct? Yes, that's true. Did did that uh, is Manhattan kind of a? I mean, it's obviously we've we've both uh, traveled to Manhattan. It's kind of a New York City is an amazing place. It, did that kind of especially inform your your worldview, or was was that just another stop on the on the road? No, I think Manhattan was deeply deeply impactful for me, and in part because Manhattan is probably the place in the United States that is the most like uh, other cities around the world um, in that like it's very transit oriented. It's very much about the streets and the sidewalks and the culture of day-to-day life in a big city. And so I feel, I think it feels, you know, I, I know it sounds funny to say, but like to me, Manhattan feels very much like Calcutta does or Bombay or Tokyo or Paris and the center of cities that are very much about pedestrians as opposed to cars uh, all have something somewhat similar to them. Um, and a lot of these cities now all suffer from the same problems. Manhattan's become incredibly expensive, as has central Paris, as has central Bombay. Um, and, and I think some of that has to do with the fact that that pedestrian lifestyle, if you can afford it, is an incredibly nice way to live, being able to just like walk your kid to school or walk and pick up groceries is really, really pleasant. Uh, and I think that pleasantness is also what's attracting a lot of people to that lifestyle, which in turn is making it much more expensive because of the amount of demand for places like that. Because in the United States, there just aren't that many walkable cities, um, you know, and uh, in, in Canada as well. I mean, I think there are a couple of small parts of cities that are walkable in downtown Toronto or in Vancouver or Montreal, but um, there's also a lot of sprawl. And, you know, um, and so Manhattan for me has always been a kind of touchstone about how one could live in almost a village-like way, which sounds counterintuitive, but to me, that's what a lot of big cities offer is the ability to live in a village in a city. Right, and it, there's kind of a, an interesting. We're obviously in Vancouver; it's a very expensive place to be as well. Um, but there is that interesting paradox, right? Like the the cities that almost are the most walkable are places like Manhattan, um, that are most like cities outside of North America seem to be the most expensive. Whereas, like the Houston's of the world, um, are are actually affordable. <laughs> Um, it, it just strikes me as an interesting kind of uh, paradox because the goal is to make cities, at least in my mind, for a lot of urban planners, more walkable, more dense, uh, and yet that seems to create challenges with affordability. Yeah, and the density thing is a double-edged sword. I mean, you know, obviously many people believe that you can bring down the cost of city living by creating more density, more housing supply in particular. Um, and that will lower costs. But I think that kind of market-based approach clearly isn't enough. 
and we need more government intervention in terms of urban housing to make cities more affordable, especially for the people we now call essential workers during this pandemic. You know, the nurses and the and and the firefighters and the people who deliver for Amazon. It's like all of those people are, are the people who are truly getting priced out of our cities. And there needs to be some more intervention to make our cities more affordable in terms of that. Um, but yeah, it is a paradox that all, you know, cities today are, are places that have that sense of, you know, to me, it's not just about walkability. It, it's about what I like to call positive social friction. The idea that when you walk on a sidewalk and you're eyeball to eyeball with people who are different than you, uh, and you realize that that person who's different from you is much less threatening than cable news or, you know, uh, the Internet might make it feel like. Right. And, and when you have that encounter with difference and it turns out to be a positive encounter, I think a lot of people yearn for that. And, um, you know, for all the people who for years have been saying, well, cities are just kind of a necessary evil. And once technology comes along, everyone's going to remote work and all of this stuff. Well, here we are. We're now living in a moment where we get to experiment with that exact idea. And what I sense from most people is they really miss face-to-face interaction. Um, that sure, remote work might have a couple of positive attributes here or there, but generally, I think most people really miss seeing each other. And I think that's one of the key things that cities provide, of course. And so um, it'll be interesting when we climb out of this pandemic to see how, how cities recover. And I'm pretty confident that they will. Uh, but they also might be different. So, so it sounds like because we've talked a lot uh, on on this show, we've had a lot of people kind of um, suggesting as much, right? That uh, people are going to move further afield and they only have to commute maybe one or two days a week. Uh, you think those that kind of change is potentially overblown here? Well, you know, I was uh, director of planning for Manhattan for Michael Bloomberg right after. 9-11. And there were many people, you know, kind of fortune telling about the demise of the city and how no one would want to work in skyscrapers anymore. Um, and obviously, soon after cities boomed and in the 20 years since, we've seen an enormous, enormous growth in urbanity around the world. And so I take with a grain of salt all of this kind of prognostication about remote work and so forth. Most of the business leaders I talk to want their workforce back in the office interacting. And a lot of human capital today is about that ability to interact and learn from each other and grow. So I think the remote work thing is a bit overblown. Yes. That said, I think there are industries where remote work will make a lot of sense. And, you know, it may make sense. I'm not sure about two days a week. What might make more sense is that certain industries might, you know, a person might say, well, I'm going to work from home, but I'll stay in the region so I can come in for an occasional meeting or an office event. But I really don't need to interact with my colleagues face to face much. And then that, that person's employer is going to say, Hmm, you know, I can save on the cost of renting that office space. And so I think that will you know, be pertinent for a certain group of employers and employees. I don't think it's a huge group, 
And I do think that cities need to think about that in terms of, um, you know, like at least in New York City, for a lot of those kinds of employees, they have some of the worst experiences in New York City. They have, they, 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 you know, because they're because their salaries can't afford living right in the heart of Manhattan or whatever. They tend to have long commutes. Um, you know, they, they tend to commute through really tired old train stations and bus stations and so forth that really haven't seen much change in you know decades. And and so for them, there's the kind of outsized incentive to try to remote work. And so I really think the cities that have those kinds of conditions should be saying to themselves, even at this moment when it feels like there's no budget to do so, you know, how can we make our city more attractive when this pandemic ends so that we don't lose like lots of population to that dynamic? You know, which is why, like, recently we proposed this provocation of banning private cars from Manhattan with the New York Times, because we think that's a low-cost way of making Manhattan much, much more attractive. It would still have uh, delivery vehicles and rideshare and, and buses and bikes, but not just, but just eliminating private cars. And we were able to illustrate why that would deliver... Uh, a better quality of life, not just for people in Manhattan, but for all the people who commute into Manhattan from the region. And I just think cities need to think smartly about how do they maintain uh, uh, being attractive places to, to employees and employers coming out of this in a way that doesn't cost, you know, bundles of money that they don't have. Right, and and maybe I am the New York Times piece with the graphics is is incredible, and we'll we'll link in our show notes for for those of our listeners who who didn't see it for sure. Um, maybe taking a step back, Vishan, um, just more broadly, even pre-COVID here, uh, I'm interested in the idea that you kind of grew up in global cities, um, you know, more like Manhattan than say. Uh, Houston, how how have we got cities wrong in North America? Do you think over the last say fifty years? Well, actually, you know, it's interesting. I was born in Calcutta, but then I grew up in the suburbs of uh, uh, I, I mainly grew up in the suburbs of Boston. Uh, uh, you know, that was very very suburban, uh, and then moved to back into cities as, as an adult. Um, and suburbia, the issue with a lot of suburbia is that. Um, People tend to think, and the Canadian circumstance, I think, is probably a little different, but there's some similarities. People tend to think that, well, people have just chosen to live a suburban lifestyle out of individual choices and market choices, when in fact, from the 1930s onward, and especially after the 1950s, enormous government resources were put into suburbanizing the population. In the United States, uh, Eisenhower passed the National Highway and Defense Act. And it, the reason it was called the National Highway and Defense Act is that it wasn't just about building highways. It was also about dispersing population in the event of a nuclear war and the ability to move uh, military equipment around. Uh, that was coupled with a number of policies that the United States adopted, uh, like uh, the GI Bill, the mortgage interest deduction, as well as a number of very racially charged policies, 
like redlining, which didn't allow African-American families the same access to bank credit that uh, white families had. And so there was a very purposeful, multi-decade effort on the part of the government to suburbanize the population. It wasn't just individual choice or market choice. It was very much policy. And a lot of that had to do with race relations in the United States. A lot of it had to do with the fact that oil companies and so forth made a lot more money. You know, we had a lot more mass transportation in the United States and our cities in 1900 than we did in 2000. We had more density in a lot of our cities in 1900 than we did in 2000. A lot of those mass transit lines were ripped out. Um, You know, there were definitely, there was like some cartel formation of corporations that um, definitely stood to profit by eliminating mass transit. Um, And then let's not forget home builders, because lots of people make a lot of money building single family homes. Um, And just generally, suburban life is a very consumptive lifestyle. You know, once you have a suburban house, you have, you know, you just think about what you fill a garage with in a suburban house, right? Lawnmowers, snowblowers, rakes, and, you know, gutter cleaners and irrigation systems. And so consumer economies really thrive off of uh, that because cities, sure, cities need maintenance equipment too, but in a city, maintenance equipment is shared, right? And so, you know, there's, there's kind of less of it per person, if you will, uh, because not everyone needs the same snowblower, right? And so, you know, there's a lot about capitalism that I think has encouraged the suburban divide, as well as a lot of uh, racial animus, especially towards African-Americans in this country that fueled suburbanization. And I think it's as younger generations are questioning these things, that we're starting to see this flight back to cities and a real questioning of the very consumptive lifestyle of suburbia. And then the last thing I just say is, well, people will often say, yeah, but the suburbs are cheaper, right? And, and, and also they often have better school systems. Well, again, those two things are by design, right? There's in the American system, lots of things that make the suburbs cheaper, free highways versus charge mass transit, uh, mortgage interest deductions. And then the school system thing is, again, largely a consequence of racial segregation and the fact that people were putting money into white suburban school districts. And so there's a whole set of reasons that people from about 1950 to 1990 were choosing to live a certain way that really then managed to chew up our landscape with highways, create a lot of problems in cities that weren't really designed to accommodate cars, especially like older cities like Montreal or Boston or, you know, where, where, where the car and the city really conflict. Um, And so I think we're still coming out of that era uh, that, that was really created after the 1950s. So, so Vishan, thinking about that, like what are some of the ways that we can now improve on cities and, and even make them more inclusive? Well, so, you know, I've been talking a lot lately about what I call sea change with the SEA representing um, sustainability, equity, and access. And so with sustainability, I think a lot about mobility, 
um, and greener ways for people to get around. Uh, and again, that goes back to that Times piece, banning private cars, more shared vehicles, more biking, uh, far, far more uh, bus use, especially like zero emission buses. This is all today's technology, right? Like that, that, this stuff all exists. A lot of that has to do with taking our existing infrastructure, which are our roads. So in most cities, about 30 to 35% of the land mass is road. So you think about how expensive Vancouver is, or you think about how expensive Toronto is, or New York, and yet we use a third of the city for roads, which is an extraordinarily unproductive way to think about the land in our city. And so um, just recycling that 30% and using it for people instead of cars um, I think would be a massive step towards sustainability. In terms of equity, you know, we're going to have a big housing crisis coming out of this pandemic at a global level. You know, global poverty is on the rise again, and it's it's really unfortunate because it was on the retreat pre-pandemic. And so, we're, you know, we're going to have a, a homeless crisis in many cities. And so, we have to invest in public housing uh, at, at the governmental level, which really in many countries stopped uh, over the course of the last several decades. I also think there's the potential, like if there is more remote work, some older office buildings could get uh, get converted into new forms of affordable housing, which is nice because it's less cost. They're already in the city. They're already integrated into neighborhoods and school districts. And so, you know, that's another way to think about better housing. And then when I think about access, to me, accessing the culture and the social infrastructure of the city at lower cost. So like one of the things I've become interested in is like all these ground floor spaces and cities that are now becoming empty because retail is suffering and retail was suffering before the pandemic. And, you know, could any of those ground floor spaces be repurposed for cultural and social infrastructure? You know, whether it's, you know, vocational training or uh, uh, small schools for, for young kids, senior centers, art centers, community centers, you know, instead of saying, well, you know, our chains, our chain stores are all failing us. So, OK, they are. But what what do we use to activate the sidewalk level of our cities if it's not chain stores? And I think the idea that we could have social infrastructure enliven the street life of our cities could be a very sort of equitable and accessible way in which people think about the city. Just in thinking of these, of these changes and it's a lot of this seems uh, very uh, interesting and also provocative, especially this idea of banning cars in Man Manhattan, I think is a, is a really interesting idea, but uh, as are, as are your other ideas, what do you see as the major challenges uh, in making some of these changes? And I guess what, what kind of response have you had? Well, I, you know, it's interesting. Um, I had really, really positive response on that, on that Manhattan piece from everyday people. I heard almost nothing from the political and business leaders in Manhattan, many of whom I know very, very well. And that I think is because the political leaders think that it's um, 
that it's just politically impossible. And you know, what's interesting to me is this reminds me of the badness of, uh, of gun control in the United States, where the vast majority of people, uh, including gun owners, want more gun safety laws, but it can't get passed through Congress. It's the same thing here. You know, in New York City, there's 8.6 million residents and only about a million car owners. And so the vast majority of the city doesn't own cars. And yet the politicians are all scared of the million who do, because the million who do are, of course, wealthy uh, for the most part. The other thing is, is that like the real estate and the business leaders, they think about, oh, well, you know, the CEO drives her car into the city every day and she's going to be really upset if she doesn't get to do that. And yet I think most CEOs don't think about that. I think most CEOs think much more about how their employees get to work. And so I, I just think that like these things seem Gary, you know, it's like when we passed the laws around the world for wheelchair access and people said, well, that's going to be incredibly expensive. It's impossible. And yet here we are, you know, uh, 30 years later, and we've, we've basically accommodated it imperfectly, but we've basically been able to do it as a society. And so what I find is there's a kind of tipping point conversation with these kinds of questions where it seems completely impossible until it's not. And then, you know, it, and as soon as it's not, it's like, duh, why didn't we do this years ago? <laughs> right? <laughs> um, and if you want a pure example of this, it's happening right now in Paris, uh, where Anne Hidalgo, one of my heroes, who's the mayor of Paris, is banning cars all over the place. And she's reopened up the, uh, the waterfront along the Seine and like done all of these extraordinary things. And everyone said it was impossible. And she just did it. And now people love it. Um, you know, the drivers don't love it, but everyone else loves it. <laughs> well, I was struck. I think in the New York in the Times piece, it, it said the average for uh, car traffic, the average uh, speed is like something like seven miles an hour, whereas that's basically how fast people are walking. Like driving is an incredibly in, ineffective way of getting around the city. Yeah. You know, I think people can, I actually love driving on the open road. I mean, like we're, I'm, we're, we're talking on, uh, from West coast to West coast. So we have gorgeous geography all around us, right. Both in Vancouver and here in the San Francisco Bay area. And it's great to get on the open road and drive, but that is not the same thing as sitting in a two hour traffic jam (laughs) every day in both directions, trying to get in and out of central Toronto. Right. And people, I think sometimes confuse those two ideas of the freedom of driving versus the imprisonment of driving. Um, because I don't know anyone who particularly likes that two hour commute, but what they want is they want to stay in the comfort and luxury and kind of segregation of their car they just want that commute to be faster. And they think the way that's going to happen is if you build more highways or if you have less people somehow magically, neither of which are going to happen. Uh, and, and, and that's, that's, I think the issue is that, you know, drive with your family on the weekend on a camping trip. Great. Great. Hopefully you drive a fuel efficient car, go do it. Right. But, you know, driving to work every day into a big city, that's just madness. Right. You, you know, one thing that strikes me uh, with this idea of banning cars in Manhattan is 
Vancouver at least seems to be aggressively pursuing policies that make it harder to drive without outright banning um, cars. Like we're Mm -hmm. in in Mm -hmm. downtown, we're creating bike lanes in what used to be thoroughfares. Uh, You know, the one way that we, we both live in East Vancouver, the one way out of the city or the main route out of the city now is, uh, one lane and 30 kilometers an hour. Like they're basically, the city seems to be daring you to drive in a, in a lot of cases. Um, yeah. Like, are you seeing that as, uh, as potentially another way of, of going about this? Well, yes, that was absolutely the first step in cities all around the world. In New York, we did the same thing. We introduced more bike lanes. What I worry about is, um, I think that's a good first step and it's an important first step. The problem is it ultimately gets to the point where everyone's incredibly frustrated, right? Because driving is terrible. If you're a biker, you know, there's nothing scarier than being on a bike with a bunch of frustrated drivers all around you. Because frustrated drivers in two-ton vehicles (laughs) are incredibly incredibly dangerous, right? They become animalistic, right? And so they just – there's – I don't know if you have this term road rage in Canada, but it's a, it's a very prevalent kind of dynamic in the United States where commuters especially just feel so angry. And so when you force them into that one lane and there's the bike lane, all of their anger is at that biker, right? That biker who has taken up what they thought was their space. And so I just think those are good stopgap measures, but I don't think they're great long-term solutions to these problems, right? Uh, Where you just, you know, I don't think it's a good in the longer term to have everyone unhappy. Right. (laughs) Right? Um, You know, also just in thinking about that, like it strikes me that uh, you're targeting the anger at bikers or other forms of of transportation as opposed to the politicians who make the choices, right? Like banning cars seems to be politically, you're politically vulnerable uh, in that situation. Whereas in this case, at least on that daily in and out uh, in in terms of transportation, it's actually, you're, you're angry at the guy on the 10 speed. Right. And, and again, I, like, I just don't think this should, you know, one of the problems with urban planning and especially transportation planning is we tend to talk about all of these things like eating your spinach, right? Where like, it's all about this negative thing that you have to do because it's for the good of the city or the good of the environment or whatever. Uh, and I don't think we should be thinking about it in that way. That's why we did that article with all of those visuals, because what we were trying to illustrate to people is that your life could be better, not worse. The change is not a loss necessarily, right? And that change can be a gain and that your life could actually be much better if you did something like this. And so, like, so for instance, if you look at the comment section on that New York Times article, the thing that I thought was most extraordinary is the thing that New Yorkers picked up the most and really like is we have this horrible garbage collection system in New York where a couple of days a week, the sidewalks are filled with mountains of trash bags. And when we said, well, let's ban the private car, it meant all those private, like all the car parking spaces on the side of the street, the curbside parking could be used for other things. And we proposed these receptacles for trash and recycling and compost and so forth. And we said, you know, that would eliminate 
the bags of trash. That was the most popular part of the proposal. <laughs> right? Because it's such a daily human indignity. Right? Here you are, you know, you're in one of the wealthiest, most sophisticated cities in the world, and you have to walk by this stinking, rotting pile of trash. And it's just we've come to accept these things as just like that's just the way it is. And when someone shows you that gee, if you just did this one thing, you could actually change all that. And that's why I just think that rather than it being about anger between drivers and bikers or whatever, let's just talk about how we can live in a nicer way for everyone. And sure, that means that the person who used to be able to drive their car into the city every day now has to take mass transit. But what if I told that person, that that mass transit could actually be a clean, quiet electric bus. It would run with such frequency because there's so much more road space that it wouldn't be very crowded. That you know, so it could be feeding only. You'd have Wi-Fi. You'd have um, fresh air and light, and you could actually get to work much quicker, right? And like that's the. Whoa. People tend to think about choices as well. It's either I drive or I have to get into that really, really crowded train through that really, really awful train station. Uh, and I, I don't want to do that. And it's hard to, you know, not fault people for that. Right. But what we were trying to do is show that, look, this would open up whole new possibilities for the way people live in ways that are both inexpensive and available in today's technology. So, so Vishant, what what in your mind then is is really at risk in in kind of keeping things just the way they are or or maintaining the status quo? I think things are hugely at risk in keeping things in the status quo. I mean, first of all, this pandemic was an appetizer compared to what climate change is going to bring our way, um, and I think it should hopefully open up people's eyes to the fact that you know. We can ignore the warnings of scientists and so forth at our peril. And most big cities are coastal cities. They're on either, you know, big seafronts or they're on riverfronts. Uh, they, they're, you know, it was 101 degrees in Berkeley yesterday. And I was a student here 20 years ago and it did not hit 100 degrees in Berkeley. Right. Um, we, you know, we can't afford the status quo. Um, I also think that there's something that's a much harder, but more important or just as important conversation, which is in addition to our physical climate is our social climate. We have huge social problems in the world. We have an enormous, enormous amount of uh, racial tension around the fact that we don't have justice in our society. A lot of these things are spatial what I mean by that is like in the 1950s and 1960s, highways were ripped through poor black and brown communities, and they're still suffering disproportionate economic and social impacts from those fissures. And so this is, you know, if nothing else, this pandemic and all of this, like being at home, hopefully it's causing everyone to be a little more contemplative about the life that they think they should lead, their children, their grandchildren, 
And like, is it really going back to the way we used to live? You know, like there are blue skies above New Delhi, India, which, you know, New Delhi hasn't seen in decades. And what, we're all just going to go back the moment there's a vaccine? Um, so I think there's huge risks to the status quo, much, much bigger risks than taking, you know, steps that are, are moderate and, and kind of uh, can be enacted without too much uh, financial pain. And, you know, like that's just the way we need to think about some of these issues going forward. We can't afford the status quo. Do you, do you see COVID, I, I, the, the idea of the appetizer here, uh, and we've had other guests on talking about, you know, creating resiliency in cities and things like that. Do you see COVID as as being kind of a, a, a force for potential positive change in, in the end? Like, are you optimistic about that? You know, I won't, some people like say, well, COVID's an opportunity and you hear this frequent thing of like a crisis is a terrible thing to waste. And, you know, what what is troubling about that kind of talk is people are suffering. Uh, obviously, people who contract the disease and healthcare workers and so forth, but also um, all the people thrown out of work. I used I bartended my way through uh, graduate education, so I know what restaurant life is like and what happens when restaurants take downturns. And so, there's a lot of pain out there, and so I'm very very. Uh, uh, hesitant to call it an opportunity. What I'd rather say is that I think it's an inflection point. Um, and by that, I mean, you know, historically, cities changed a great deal in the aftermath of pandemics. Cholera, tuberculosis, even the bubonic plague, you know, changed everything from sewage systems to light and air systems, uh, light and air standards, rather, to, uh, to zoning. And so we should be able to build back better. I mean, that, that, that is the bottom line. And so that's why, like, in our piece for the, this, this thing for the Times, it wasn't about fortune-telling. It wasn't about saying, well, this is what's going to happen. Instead, of, like, I think this is a moment where, again, we should contemplate and think about what should happen, you know? Um, and, and, like, how do we make things more equitable more sustainable, more accessible in this world that we're going into. And so, you know, again, I, I think it's a major inflection point because there are very few things that happen that are truly global, right? Where, where it affects every man, woman, and child on the face of the earth. And, and, you know, when something like this happens, this is an opportunity to say, well, look, you know, there's 7 billion people on the planet today. By the end of this century, there's probably going to be about 10 billion. We're probably going to level out at about 10 billion. How can those 10 billion people live sustainably and equitably on the planet? And I don't think that is a foolish or misplaced question at this point. I think that's that's certainly the question that like I think about as the dean of a college of environmental design and someone who runs a practice is like, how, how do we get there? What models do we have? And we can't, none of us can solve that problem by ourselves, nor should we try. But what we can do is we can assert things, right? There, we, we can assert ideas about how 10 billion people can inhabit the planet in a better way. And that was our whole thing. Our Manhattan thing wasn't about Manhattan. It was about cities more generally. And given that, you know, 75% of the world's population will live in cities by 2050, 
that's a pretty good place to start in my mind. Right. You know, one thing just, and this is more thinking out loud, I just got back from a holiday where I drove across Western Canada, um, and, and Vancouver's a fairly, I think, fairly progressive city, um, and I like to think most people here are on board with a lot of kind of forward-thinking ideas, but I was... I, I, every time I go across and see different cities from, you know, Calgary through Regina and Winnipeg um, in Western Canada, it, it seems like we're at various stages or the cultures are so distinct around, say, cars. And, you know, Calgary has a car culture much different than Vancouver. I guess I'm just thinking out loud here, like how how do you think about kind of potentially universalizing ideas or or – having different ideas or the same ideas kind of fit in different kind of cultural centers? Well, you know, I don't think there are one size fits all solutions. And, you know, I've been to Vancouver, I've been to Calgary, and I understand what you're saying that culturally, these are very different places. Um, I, I do think one of the common things we have though is our youth and our youth have certain similar trends going on. My son's 18, he's off to college, and very few of his friends from lots of different places are interested in driving. And that, like, we're seeing that as a somewhat worldwide phenomena. So it's not that it's a solution that's a one-size universalizing solution. It's more saying, are there trends out there, particularly with young people, and also, by the way, with senior citizens, um, that are trends that you can build upon around some of these questions and issues. Because um, the other thing that every city is going to have to face, so what's interesting is some of these cities that you're talking about that maybe have a different cultural milieu, Calgary, Houston, those tend to be very market-oriented cities, right? They tend to believe in capitalism, believe in the power of the individual, um, so what's interesting is if you believe in free market competition, well, one of the key things that all cities are now dealing with is that cities are in always this now fight for human capital. How do I attract more young people to my city versus another city? And this is going to be true regardless of remote work and all of that nonsense. People are still going to make all sorts of big geographic choices for their life. What community the, the young people want to be in as they, as they get out of university. And the cities that say, we're just going to say that car-oriented city, they're going to lose young people, right? Like the, and they're going to consequently take economic hits because of that. So if they believe in free market competition, they should look at this issue through that lens because they will ignore it at their own peril if they think that because I'm telling you right now, people my son's age, and I don't care whether they're from Calgary or Houston or Eastern China, they're not going to sit in two hours of traffic outside of Toronto and Atlanta when mm -hmm. they're my age. They're not going to do that. Right. And if those cities don't change the way they think about these issues, they are going to lose the ability to attract the people, the jobs, the economic activity that they're going to want going forward. Which cities do you draw inspiration from? Um, 
I like to draw inspiration from places big and small. I mean, I spent time in Japanese farming villages where, uh, sorry, uh, city life. Um, uh, uh, I've spent time in Japanese farming villages where there's an, you know, the farmers all live in, uh, along a shared street with like, you know, there's still a sense of urbanity, even though it's a farming village, if that makes sense. Um, you know, there's, Certain cities I just love in East Asia, Tokyo and Hong Kong, both are two of my favorite cities. You asked about favorite neighborhoods. Uh, I have this neighborhood, Asakusa, in Tokyo that I stayed with my family a long time ago with some students. And uh, it's just one of my favorite places. Um, parts of Paris, certainly. Um, I love central Calcutta still. It's really walkable and fascinating. And it's like all of human life turned inside out on the streets of the city. Um, so there are many places that I, I really love and enjoy. Um, the common thread tends to be street life. Places that really understand that streets weren't built for cars. Streets were invented thousands of years ago. Streets were built for social interaction. And the places that really understand that and use the street as the key building block of the city, those are the places that I find to be really great. Oh, that's a great, great answer. Um, maybe a, a final question. Are, are the, the global cities today the, the global cities of tomorrow? Well, you know, it's interesting. That term global cities sort of came uh, into fashion in the late 1980s with what like we in academia used to call late capitalism. Uh, where you saw this enormous concentration of financial power in certain cities with New York, uh, Tokyo, and London being like the prime examples of that, where you had major trading going on and, and like were the major financial centers of the world. Today, I think that that's a really outdated idea of what a global city is. Um, and so, you know, there used to be this term uh, that I like to use every once in a while called cosmopolis, which is a Greek term, which isn't the same as cosmopolitan. Cosmopolis means literally like cities of con con that consist of people from around the world. And there are many cities like this where you go and there's just people from every walk of life. You know, like Hong Kong is an incredibly diverse city. Uh, you know, uh, but like, I also just think that we today are in the global South. We're dealing with cities, you know, Bombay has 2000 new people moving into it every day, at least pre pandemic. And, um, so those are also global cities and big, important global cities, uh, just by sheer population size, whether or not they're major financial centers, Bombay is, but like it just, you know, to me, um, What's really interesting isn't so much a, the financial power of a city, but the social and cultural power of the city in terms of its, its sense of, of diversity and inclusion, which is also why some of the European cities that so fascinate people, I find less fascinating just because they tend to be quite homogenous. Hmm. 
Well, maybe we'll leave it there, but we do have this uh, segment, Vishan, called uh, the Five Wire, five, five Quick Questions. Can you stick around for that? Sure. Okay, so you kind of already uh, alluded to the first question, but your favorite neighborhood, and this could be anywhere in the world. Yeah, I, I, I'll, I'll stick with Asakusa in Tokyo, uh, but I have a lot of favorite neighborhoods. There's parts of North Calcutta, uh, there's Union Square, where my office is in Manhattan. You know, there's a lot of different great neighborhoods and great cities around the world. Favorite bar or restaurant? I'm guessing most of our listeners won't be able to visit. Yeah, probably the Odeon in New York City, which is a classic downtown, 24-7. Um, lots of architects hang out there, I'm afraid. So many people may not want to go there, but it's one of my favorites. <laughs> What is one book that you'd recommend to any of our listeners? Um, well, my favorite piece of fiction is A Hundred Years of Solitude uh, by Gabriel Garcia Marquez uh, about sort of the hubris of human beings. Um, I'm currently reading a book called Hauser, which is the life and times of Catherine Bauer, a woman who basically invented public housing in the United States, and I'm finding it to be a great read. Um, but yeah, I'm going to stick with Hundred years of solitude. Right, that's a that's a classic for sure. What is one piece of advice you would give your eighteen year old self or son or son? Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, um, to let life happen. Um, you know, when I was eighteen, I didn't have any real clue what I wanted to do with my life. I had all these different interests in art and in math and all of these things and. I feel like there's just, there's so much pressure on, on young people today to figure out exactly what they want to do at younger and younger ages. And I'm, I'm a big believer of just like letting life kind of wash over you and, and, and ultimately just, you know, working hard, being respectful and you'll find your path. That's a great one. And, and the last question, what is something that you've bought in the last year or two for under a thousand dollars that's changed your life? Oh, that one's easy. The Apple Pencil. Best invention ever because... I didn't even know about that. <laughs> no, I love to draw. And on an iPad, you can now... I love things that merge, you know, techno I love technology that merges a basic sense of human experience. So an Apple Pencil is basically a pencil. It's a digital pencil. It's a stylus, really. But it's just... The workflow is incredibly smooth, and I love using it to draw and interacting with my team. It's really changed the way I designed with my team. Wow, that's a great one. Yeah, that's I'd say the first one that. Well, no, there's. I wish I had something to draw. That's the only problem. Yeah. Well, well, thanks so much, Vishan, for for taking the time. How can people find out? We'll we'll link to the Times piece for sure. Uh, but how can people find out more about what uh, you and your team are doing? Uh, there's my website at our office, which is uh, uh, studio, And there's also the Berkeley website, which is cd.berkeley.edu, uh, which talks more about our academic travails. Um, and so those two websites basically cover it. Thank you so much. Uh, again, thanks for the time. Really fascinating conversation. Sure, my pleasure. Thanks. So 
there you have it, folks. Our discussion with Vishan Chakrabarty, Dean of the College of Environmental Design at UC Berkeley and founder of Practice for Architecture and Urbanism with offices in New York and California. That was a great conversation. That was a mouthful too. I, Ooh. you know, and that's you covered that, about like one eighth of uh, Vishan's uh, resume. Yeah, no, he's probably he's, from the last year or two. No kidding, that's what he did in the last couple of weeks. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, it's uh, he's he's a super exciting guy and definitely a thought leader when it comes to cities. And it just makes you after that conversation how positive are you social not, friction. Yeah, I like that idea. Yeah, that's totally not what I thought it, positive social <laughs> friction was. <laughs> <laughs> I spent my whole high school thinking about positive social friction and uh, it didn't, ha- didn't happen to my last year in college. <laughs> Anyways. Oh. No, I'm just kidding. It happened much earlier. <laughs> yeah, sure it did. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> let's keep the PG rating here. Yeah. What else What else do we, do we have uh, today, Adam? A few things. Right. First off, as we mentioned in the intro, Tons of great content coming up. Mark Henneman, writer from for Family Guy. Yeah, uh, incredible. On he's working on a screenplay right now with Seth MacFarlane. Yeah, it sounds like they're MacFarlane. Uh, Farlane. I think it's Seth MacFarlane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, very impressive guy and a very very astute real estate uh, mind. That's Ninety for sure. million in holdings in L.A. And, and kind of fell into it accidentally. It's uh, this is a phenomenal story, and and you will take so much away. And it's also it makes you. It doesn't matter who you are or where you started out in life. This is like one of those inspirational stories. I look at a guy like uh, Mark. And it just makes you think, man, buckle down. You know, anyone can do this. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. And that, that would be probably his his take as well, right? Oh, so, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Very nice Super guy. nice guy. Yeah. And then we also have a property managed related company. They're not actually a property management company, but it's full of not ex-cons, although that's another one. That's <laughs> another be. interesting concept. Yeah. Ex, <laughs> ex-cops. Also. Ex-cops. Yeah. So these guys, they went from the drug beat to the... Uh, the to, tenant the, to the tenant beat, yeah. yeah. Stakeouts and everything. It's uh, quite, quite... It's a, it's a phenomenal episode as yeah, well. Yeah, quite We've an interesting really, story. Really interesting episodes coming up. Um, before we leave for the day, though, Matt, we also have VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. That's right. Head over to our website where you get all things real estate related. Uh, that's where you can sign up to the Sellers Club. Yes. Adam, remind us what the Sellers Club is. Matt, it is the best resources for sellers to get top dollar in the shortest amount of time, and we're putting them together. All you got to do is send an email to us or respond to the live wire with the with the subject line Sellers Club, and we'll get you out volume one. And then we're going to be continuously putting out yeah, new content. Volume two, volume three, volume four. It's all coming. You sign up once, you get all that content. That's Absolutely. a seller's club at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. We also have the live wire. We do. Everybody should be on the live wire. This has deal of the month. We're sending out stats. Stats that the real estate board doesn't produce themselves. Very true. Uh, you get those immediately at the start of each month. And last but not least, Adam, we have tried and true private client services. Because Matt, if you are not using PCS, you are standing still while the rest of us power walk by. You get sold prices, days on market. You basically get realtor level information at your fingertips. It's free. It's the best way to search for real estate in Vancouver. There's a sign up link on our site. You can sign up for your free account today. And it is the best way to look for real estate. There's no question about that. VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. If you want to talk about that or anything else, give me a call, 778-847-2854 or matt at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. 
or if you want to try me at 778-866-4574 or adam at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. We also got that secret line, info at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. Not an ex-cop, but he's uh, he's like a combination of Serpico and Sipowitz. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> he definitely bit. likes he definitely likes uh, to wear a tie with short sleeves. <laughs> he's, he's actually that's that's that right kind of his. Yeah, that is his look, yeah. and it's like the off-white shirt with the uh, yellow pits, <laughs> slightly stained. Yeah, slightly stained. <laughs> Have a good week, guys. Take care. Two thousand faces for radio. Subscribe today. <laughs> Hey everyone, pardon the interruption. We just want to take a quick minute to thank the following sponsors who make this show possible. We want to take a minute to tell you about Holy House, a nonprofit organization that provides community building programs and tenant support services to low-income seniors, veterans, families, and vulnerable residents in the downtown east side and across the lower mainland. Melissa from our team has been volunteering at Holy House. Melissa, what's been your experience? Honestly, it's been so fulfilling just to spend a few hours a week in the community and watch how the staff really transforms these vulnerable communities from the inside out, starting with just small things, right? Playing games, drinking coffee, having some simple conversations that you wouldn't necessarily think are super fulfilling. And you come out just feeling like you've really made an impact and connected with the community. And you've been to multiple buildings, but you're playing games, drinking coffee. Yeah, you know, serving food sometimes. And you made some friends along the and way. I've made some friends along the way. It's really helped me be more present, actually, in those moments of just, you know, realizing how simple life can be to make an impact, right? Fantastic. And if you want to learn more, you can definitely check out Jenny Conkin, co-founder of Holy House, who is a past guest fan favorite on the show, or head over to holyhouse.ca where you can donate or volunteer, and they're looking for both donations, and they definitely like volunteers. That's holyhouse.ca. Vancouver needs your help. Be part of the solution. We are also sponsored by Oakland Realty. This is our real estate brokerage, best brokerage in the city, hands down. If you are in the industry, a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody just looking to make a change, new culture, new energy, new resources, head over to oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. That's oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. Not only do you get to meet Michael Morgan and the gang, the big wigs over at Oakland, you get a huge incentive for first going to oakland.com slash join, typing in VRP 2020.